Good evening, fellow creatures of the night. Thanks for joining again. You're in the crypt of the infected. So get ready for a solid hour of dark music and background stories to go along with them. It's now August 25th, and that means we're approaching the end of summer. The days are getting shorter and nights are getting longer. So let's start off with a track that feels like it's bridging this summer with a beautiful autumn season. This is Warpaint Shadows. Welcome to the Infected.
awesome track, man. Really, really like it. I was uh, just uh, trying to figure out where I'd heard Warpaint before because it sounded familiar, and it turns out I've uh, I've liked and uh, entered into my favorites playlist two different songs by them. I, I didn't know this one. Um, and I don't have any sort of story or history or um, idea about the band. So can you tell us a little more about Warpaint? Sure can, sure can. Warpaint, first of all, what a what a great band name. It's an all-female LA quartet that appears to have a direct line back to uh, 1982 or something, Britain, vibe-wise. And uh, the song we just played is uh, Shadows. It's from their debut album, The Fool, from 2010. Where shall I begin with my fan rant about this great song? <laughs> it gives me goosebumps uh, even yeah, 10 years later. Still uh, play it frequently. Yeah. If I had to describe this album, The Fool, it's uh, in simple terms, I would say it sounds soothing and immersive. There are certain elements of grunge to be uh, discovered, but also uh, ethereal sounding segments from the Cocteau Twins, if you will. It's more about uh, ambience than action. And um, what I specifically like, the, the drum sections, they have a post-punk feel to them. And uh, the bass lines, and I'm, I know you're a fan uh, of bass lines as a bass player. Oh. Uh, they're great too, on this whole album throughout. And uh, also on this song, I think, Shadows. Um, they could be one of the bands like the Chromatics to close off a season three episode of Twin Peaks. You remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like um, moody red curtains behind it, but most of all, I think uh, this is just real music. It's, it's authentic. It's got a heart and soul, and uh, it's four women playing instruments in a room, and that's it basically. That's all you need. So if you're sick of modern and manufactured crap, then you should do yourself a favor and check out more of Warpaint, especially if you're into post-punk and alternative music. I think you will definitely enjoy this one. Yeah, yeah the, the the singing makes it special, right? I mean, she has a, a special voice, very atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. Uh, floating almost. And uh, if you see live footage of them on YouTube, it seems like each one of the band members is uh, in her own zone, often with eyes shut, head loose, uh, shoegazing. <laughs> and it's almost like watching them make up songs in real time <laughs> uh, in every show. They're, they're quite tuned in into one another. Wow. Uh, the chemistry can't be denied. It's an absolute joy, if you ask me. Cool, it's a cool band, and um, I all, I'm all for uh, women bass players. There's not enough of them. Um, one of my idols has always been uh, Tina Weymouth of uh, Talking Heads, but um, um, yeah, they, they yeah, 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 that's a that's a famous one. And uh, how about Kim Deal yeah. from the uh, Pixies? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kim is definitely uh, <laughs> up there. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the first track. Uh, Hope you uh, hope you liked it. I, I loved it. What else do we have in store uh, today? So, um, at the risk of talking way too much, let's see uh, how I can uh, sort of contain myself because <laughs> I have um, gathered three songs uh, that I want to uh, tell a story uh, with. And basically, this is a story of a man that I'm a huge uh, fanboy of. And um, for comparison, uh, I think it's uh, it's something you can compare with uh, Andy Warhol. Have you heard of Andy Warhol? Yes, of course. Yes. Right. So he had the studio in New York, the factory, and with this whole entourage of all kinds of creative people, and uh, um, you know, hugely influential in pop art, in fashion, in music, in bands like Velvet Underground, and artists uh, and photo model like Nico or Lou Reed, G.J. Kale. That's really uh, uh, an entire group of very talented people, right? And I think their story is uh, is rather well known. Mm -hmm. 
Tonight I want to tell a story about a man who was even more influential in the 80s. A man who built a similar studio, bustling with creativity, built a great entourage of people, and they would change electronic music forever. And several of his team members would become immensely successful in their own right. And still, his name is hardly known. I'm talking about Trevor Horn. Ah, he was a yes, famous <laughs> name. Yeah, yeah you, you know him, right? Yes. Yeah, we're music nerds. But uh, in the general public, I don't think many people will recognize the name Trevor Horn. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, he was a studio musician, a bass player, and he really wanted to be a producer. He tried producing some, uh, as he calls it, uh, amateurish punk bands during the 70s with awful names, <laughs> as he said. <laughs> um, but um, his first success and uh, uh, touch of the charts was when he started dating uh, Tina Charles, the singer. Okay. Trevor became her musical director as well as a backup bass player for her band while he was building his recording studio. And Tina Charles soon topped the charts internationally with hit singles like Love to Love in the late 70s. So in London, Northern boy Trevor was making some money producing radio commercials in his studio. And in his spare time he'd been working with Bruce Woolley, a London guy, to form his own act, The Buggles. Basically, he hated all the names of the punk band so much that he tried to come up with an even stupider name, um, <laughs> which is why uh, they uh, chose The Buggles. It sounds uh, kind of cuddly almost, Jeroen, The, the Buggles. They, they wanted to call themselves The Bugs. The Fraggles. <laughs> but uh, they mm. weren't allowed by the, the record company, so they had to change it to The Buggles. Um, okay. And anyway, he, him and Bruce together, in an hour, one hour of an afternoon in 1978, they wrote a track called Video Killed the Radio Star. Yes. And basically the inspiration for this song were three different elements. And the first one, of course, all, this is also a recurring theme in our podcast. I read a story by J.G. Ballard. Ah, here we <laughs> so go Trevor again. Warren says. Yeah, so in this case it was a short story, The Sound Sweep. And in this story, an opera singer is rendered obsolete in a world without sound. And I had this vision of the future where record companies would have computers in the basement and manufacture artists. Second inspiration was I'd heard Kraftwerk's The Man Machine. It was like you could see the future when you heard Kraftwerk. Something new is coming, something different. Different rhythm section, different mentality. And finally, video was becoming immensely important. And you could feel things changing at the end of the 17s. So, we had all of that, and we wrote this song. So they wrote video, Kill the Radio Star. It's a very complex, modern-sounding pop song. Uh, we stayed up for nights experimenting with different sounds. We wanted to cram as many ideas as we could into a pop song. The Buggles were predicated on the idea that everything in life is artificial, including music. That's why it's sung in a sort of a robotic voice and why the instruments are all processed for a computerized feel. It was a commentary on the intrusion of technology into every aspect of our lives. Interestingly, this was a track recorded with traditional instruments that was made to sound like it had been done by computers. So the track was recorded in 1979 and back then the first line of the song refers to the wireless, but they didn't mean Wi-Fi back then, but actually they meant the radio. Uh, it's the first hit song showcasing Trevor Horn's unique ability to make a recording sound timeless. It was also the first music video ever to be played on MTV. Video Kill the Radio Star was shot in South London in one day, directed by Russell Mulcahy. You, do you recognize that name? No, I don't, to be honest. So he, he's done a... He's done a couple more video clips. Uh, for instance, uh, he uh, he loved theatrics and he went on to make videos for Duran, including yeah, Wild yeah. Boys, you know, with that huge wheel, and, and Rio, uh, before he actually directed the 1986 film Highlander. With Christopher Lambert. With Christopher Lambert, right. 
And also performing in this video were Hans Zimmer on keyboards and Warren Ken, the drummer from Ultravox on drums, to make it look like a band. <laughs> <laughs> and helped by MTV, Video Killed the Radio Star became a UK number one hit single and it also went to number one in 15 more countries, including America. So let's listen to the song. It's a really catchy one, this one, uh, Jeroen. And also, it's uh, what's the English word for it? Prophetic, almost. It, it it did kill a lot of radio stars. Let's put it that way. MTV. 
because of their looks, right? If you weren't good yeah. looking or had a catchy video clip or weren't able to uh, to produce it, you were uh, kind of lost. I know uh, definitely one example of this is uh, Christopher Cross, who was doing really great in the late 70s, who's a really um, uh, not very attractive and, and terribly uncharismatic guy. And they just weren't able to market him anymore as a singer once the video became uh, <laughs> this uh, important. Yeah. I got uh, I got one uh, one other great example that I will keep for uh, for uh, later in this show. Yeah. So there was a third unofficial member in Buggles, and he's also in the video. You can see him uh, standing in front of the modular uh, in the clip. That is uh, Hans Zimmer, and uh, basically <laughs> he joined the entourage of uh, Trevor Horn by pure coincidence. Um, actually, Hans uh, had left his native Germany for London after school and he started out as a synth programmer working on radio ads, which is how he met Trevor. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Trevor produced and engineered several of his 30-second commercial spots, which Hans had composed and arranged. So one day, Trevor Horn told Zimmer about the Buggles project and he invited him to help him out. So Hans remembers this uh, fondly. He said, I would start working with Trevor at 6 in the evening. We would finish at 9 in the morning and then I needed to get to my 10 o'clock morning session, which was actually paying my rent. It was a pretty harsh lifestyle. <laughs> but Trevor was always brilliant. Great story. And I really learned a lot from him. He taught me how to listen. And I'll include uh, uh, a picture uh, of uh, Hans Zimmer standing uh, in front of that uh, huge wall of uh, synthesizers uh, from the clip. I'll uh, put it. Uh, My phone is now buzzing because yeah, we're so you can uh, see it. infected. We're recording everything uh, from a distance, and Jeroen is now sending over an image. And this is. Is that Hans? Yep, definitely. Wow. <laughs> That's a very, very, very wow, young Hans. Those modular synths in the background. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> right? So Hans uh, yeah. joined the entourage of Trevor Horn, and he was building his uh, company. Another talent that uh, Horn picked up was his classical clarinet and piano player called Anne Dudley. She'd just been out of uh, um, uh, school for, for a year. She was working night shifts behind the keyboards in, in late 1970s studios. And there she met Trevor Horn, who offered her work as an arranger on his team. So the name Anne Dudley may not sound familiar, but I'll come back to that. Anne um, also met Zimmer, obviously. And Zimmer introduced her to one of the first wildly expensive polyphonic synthesizers, the Prophet 5 which uh, had been used pretty much for the first time by Downs on Video Killed Radio Star. And Anne Dudley describes the first polyphonic chord played to her as a jaw-dropping moment. Soon she was full-time on the studio team around working with Trevor Horn and she was producing records like ABC's Lexicon of Love, for which without any sort of experience she wrote all the string sections, because Trevor said she could do it. And they also worked on Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock. So, uh, in 1983, Horn's team was working on the Yes Comeback album, 901-5. Horn as a producer and Anne Dudley providing arrangements and keyboard programming. And Horn was among the first people to use samples. You know, some others were using samples as sort of a special effect in a pop song, but Horn and his team saw the potential to craft entire compositions with the sampler, disrupting the traditional rock way of writing and composing. And those, uh, those if you think a uh, sequential as what was it again? Sequential circuits, Profit 5 was expensive. Imagine the price of a sampler back in those days because memory was really expensive. Right, exactly. 
And um, yeah. Anne Dudley has some fond memories of this. She said, we started playing together in our own time. So Trevor had got a new synthesizer from Australia, a Fairlight, which really fascinated us. It made it relatively easy to put in a sample of, say, a dog barking, and then you could play it in different pitches. So during the Yes sessions, the team took an unused Yes drum riff and sampled it into the Fairlight using the device's sequencer. This was the first time an entire drum pattern had been sampled into the machine. And then they added some non-musical sounds on top of it before playing the, the track back to horn. And this resulted in the red and blue mix of Yes's Owner of a Lonely Heart single. And it showcased the prototype sound that would become the Art of Noise. So the Art of Noise, basically the concept of that was based on the Art of Noises, which was a book by Italian Futurist Movement from the beginning of the 20th century. Among other things, these futurists had imagined that there would be created a new kind of music by using daily noises instead of classical instruments. So this vision was finally made possible by the Fairlight. And the members of the Art of Noise were arranger Anne Dudley, engineer Langan, and a producer Trevor Horn as well as a programmer. To complete the team, Trevor hired a media concept man called Paul Morley. He was an influential journalist for New Musical Express magazine and Horn hired him to do propaganda for the team's productions. He also joined the Art of Noise, where Anne Dudley and the boys were having fun. And using samples of Leave It and Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes, which Trevor Horn had produced, we wrote a piece of music with lots of different sections and samples. There was a neighbor's VW Golf starting and stalling and group members saying, Urgh, and money, which we played backward. This was back in the day when editing a song mean, meant that you had to literally slice tape with a razor blade. We ended up with something quite quirky and we certainly did not think it would have legs as a single. To our amazement, it got to number 8. This is close to the edit.
I like this kind of stuff. Is this uh, is this music? This was a real discussion back in the day whether this was actually actually music or not. Do you think this is music? Hope? Yes, yes, yes. Of course it is. <laughs> you like it? it, yeah? it, it like Yellow uh, did later, many, many, many years later, used samples and made it into coherent, great sounding music. Especially if you listen to it more. Uh, yes, it's music. And uh, George Clinton comes to mind also with uh, use of uh, st- samples. But I like this. And also the um, a bit of history about uh, how, how this came about. 
Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned George Clinton. It's definitely in there. He was working at this time. He was working with Thomas Dolby, and they were having fun together. Also, that's maybe something for another episode. Um, but yeah, definitely. And it's it's you know, this team of talented people that Trevor was building were doing all these sort of new and innovative things. Um, it was just a, a very interesting time. So I just mm-hmm. uh, mentioned Paul Morley, Mr. Media, right? Yeah. Who um, by now was hugely successful with his propaganda strategy. Um, for instance, for uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, where he mm-hmm. managed to create uh, this this whole sort of crisis with the BBC, where their single yeah. Relax was banned, which was obviously you know fantastic for the ra- the, sa- the sales of the record. Um, so he'd become a very important part of the team as well. And Great actually, marketing. Yeah, definitely. He, says, he, uh, he he met a girl from Germany called Claudia Brücken, and um, she decided uh, that she wanted to live over in London, and then the whole team decided that she would probably need a band of her own. And the name of her band was obvious. It would be Propaganda, right? Yes. <laughs> being uh, being the wife of Paul Morley, uh, it was sort of destiny. And uh, Propaganda was formed around Claudia Brücken. And actually, um, they did something interesting. They tried uh, to get a different producer for, for her to get a different sound. And they asked David Sylvian, um, the singer of Japan, to produce propaganda. Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And eventually he decided against producing them. But while he was thinking about it, he already came up with a couple of song ideas and the really ghostly top line and music of the song P Machinery. I'm a huge fan of Japan and David mm-hmm. Sylvian. And the funny thing is, uh, I never noticed it, but knowing this now, when I listen to P Machinery, I can sort of hear the relation. I can sort of hear his hand in it. It's, uh, it's very interesting. So let's listen to uh, P Machinery for a minute.
I didn't know about uh, David Sylvian's involvement, but I do know that I've uh, been a big fan of Propaganda, and that, that didn't do much work. I believe it was one album and one uh, compilation or remix album, but there's not one bad track on the album that they did. It was Blue with Grey, can't remember the name. And I did know that Trevor was behind it because it sounds big, uh, just like uh, almost everything that Trevor's involved in. What, what did you think that uh, David Sylvian's influence uh, was in this? What, what did you pick up on? It's the, the you can definitely hear he's uh, um, come up with the, the song, the, the vocals, the, the, so, the song structure. And you can also hear it in the sort of the rhythm of this track, which is slightly different from other tracks on the album. And it's actually reminiscent of uh, um, the late work of uh, Japan when they were very uh, uh, instrumentally focused as well. So yeah, I, I, I can hear that sort of signature in there. Yeah. But in the end, um, Stephen Lipson was the one who produced the Propaganda album. So he was another one of the, the people on the, in the entourage of uh, Trevor Horn. Obviously, Horn supervised the production. Um, but making this album, again, they did something revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And um, they took a Lin, a Fairlight, a DMX, a DSX, and a Roland M5. And all of these were interconnected. And they were all programmed to be able to play the whole song. And then they synchronized the instruments with each other. So they programmed everything with the idea in mind that the girls could then sing over it while they would lean back and just press some buttons <laughs> without using any tape. <laughs> this was the dream, right? No tape. Yeah. They wanted to be able to do... After doing 24 hours of work programming, they can sit back and let the girls <laughs> right. sing. And this was almost the, the, the inverse of the, of, the, of the first song that we played, um, where they had these traditional instruments and they wanted to sound them, uh, have them sound computerized. Mm -hmm. Here they were trying to get everything into the machine. Uh, and not only not use any instruments, but also not use any recording tape and, you know, have it all basically coming uh, right out of the machines. I like the way the, the voice sounds, uh, by the way, the, the singer of uh, Propaganda. What's her name again? Oh, she has a beautiful, beautiful voice. Yeah, Claudia Brücken. Oh, yeah. Or yeah, it takes you yeah, away. Yeah, definitely. Oh, Obviously, uh, they had this great idea of, you know, synchronizing all these machines and then, and then using them this way. And on recording day, the whole setup went berserk. <laughs> Hmm. And they had to start all over again and re if eventually recorded the whole thing on tape. Oh, man. <laughs> Imagine if you so, were yeah. uh, working on programming for uh, for 10 hours or so and then have a uh, electrical surge or a problem so you can start all over again. Yeah, they were trying to get these five machines synchronized and it was just too much, right? Yeah. But yeah. even though uh, the, the fully programmed song technique failed the first time, Horn soon found out that it could be used to copy multi-tracks. And he could copy and paste them over several measures. And this is basically still the way uh, in Pro Tools that music is being made today, right? And he thought, okay, wow, this is something I can use for Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. So that was supposed to be only a three-minute intro track for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But he was having so much fun copying and stretching all this music over and over that in the end, he worked three months on the song and it became 13 minutes long. That's how much fun they were having. 13 minutes, <laughs> yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Oh, uh, that, that's, that's a, yeah, that's almost a soundtrack to a certain era or something. Yeah. It's so big. And you can it. hear all of the possibilities that were opening up uh, once they had mastered this way of, you know, composing uh, in the machine and then using all these sounds and being able to have all this freedom in, in moving all these sounds around and creating a great sound stage. Yeah, I must so also say that uh, Trevor had a big uh, ear, or his, uh, or his wife maybe, uh, along with him, for selecting great vocalists to sing. Because um, uh, Propaganda, 
uh, vocalist and also uh, what's his name again John something from from Frankie goes to Hollywood Holly Holly Johnson yeah Holly oh, sorry Holly Johnson that's his name yeah with this hugely talented group of people who they they actually were the real stars behind many great 80s bands and acts and they produced hits for I'm going to take a deep breath here. Seal, Simple Minds, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ABC, Mark Almond, The Art of Noise, Barry Manilow, Boyzone, Cher, Brian Ferry, Gabriel, Godly and Cream, Grace Jones, Paul McCartney, Tom Jones, Malcolm McLaren, Mike Oldfield, The Pet Shop Boys, Anne Pigal, Spando Ballet, Rod Stewart, Tina Turner, and Wendy and Lisa. All of those <laughs> acts had their hits produced by this team of people. Sure as well. Oh man, I didn't know. And Dudley went on to become a producer for Tom Jones, Alison Moyette, and Debbie Harry. And then she also became the first composer for the BBC Concert Orchestra and an Oscar-winning soundtrack writer for The Full Monty, as well as having written over 23 other movie scores like American History X, Les Miserables and Bright Young Things by Stephen Fry. Uh, fun, funny, funnily, she also is the uh, favorite soundtrack writer of Paul Verhoeven these days. She's done the scores for his movies Black Book, L, and his soon-to-be-released movie Benedetta. I uh, lost uh, track of Paul Verhoeven, but he's coming out with some new stuff. That's awesome. So yeah, yeah, there's a new movie, uh, Benedetta, which is about a lesbian nun. Oh, really? <laughs> it sounds like Paul Verhoeven. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. So Zwartboek, Black Book was yeah. also, uh, I think, uh, a success. I saw Paul uh, walking in the streets of The Hague, which is a beautiful coastal uh, city in the Netherlands, obviously, and Paul's living there these days. But I um, I thought, is, is it him? And my wife said, yes, it's him. He lives around here. I didn't know, but I was too starstruck to approach him. <laughs> yeah. But uh, holy shit, this guy. He was responsible for um, Robocop showgirls yeah i'm not sure why i'm saying showgirls second but uh, also total recall smart book yeah uh, soldier of yep. orange flesh and yeah. blood yeah. flesh and blood yeah yeah definitely big yeah. big movies so that's fun fun to see that this uh, this this girl that was picked up uh, after college uh, eventually you know was uh, leading the bbc concert orchestra and winning mm -hmm. oscars uh, by the way hans zimmer also has been making movie and video game soundtracks since the late yes. 80s he has a huge amount of Hollywood film scores to his name, you know, True Romance, Backdraft, Rain Man, Green Card, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, four Batman movies, Pearl Harbor, Pirates of the Caribbean, Sherlock Holmes, Inception, and he won an Oscar as well for The Lion King in 2011. Yes, that's a, that's a hard one, that's an animation. Yeah. Imagine if you don't can, can't relate to real life people but have to um, do it for, through an animation, that would be quite hard. Yeah. And um, I also read that the three or four Batman movies it took him 12 years of continuous work and perfectioning and uh, and, and, and tuning it up to uh, to deliver it and also uh, you are a big fan of this one the Blade Runner 2049 he was doing the programming on that as well yeah definitely and uh, to lead up to this uh, item um, I uh, mixed our previous episode and um, in the previous episode of this podcast the happy goth accident Every backing track I used was actually taken from the Hans Zimmer Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack. Now we gotta we gotta listen to it again. Yeah, definitely. So you see this um, how I made this comparison with uh, Andy Warhol and his uh, New York entourage. Um, Trevor Horn created all these hits with this group of people who were all talented, who all ended up, you know, being rock stars or, or, or winning Oscars. 
um, and, and changing the face and the way the music was made um, all at the same time. So I think uh, this is one of the least well-known and most influential people uh, in the uh, age of music that we like so much uh, when the electronics uh, started uh, to uh, get a whole new level of creativity out there. Great background, Jeroen, and uh, also great selection. And did you know what you just did there? Oh. You made a trifecta, buddy. <laughs> It's a trifecta of, of greatness. It's a coherent three big tracks that we just played. So there you have it. Allow me to take it uh, back to 1981, if that's okay, Jeroen. Yeah, um, great year. And let's listen to some music now, and I'll tell you a little bit about it uh, afterwards. We're going to listen to the sound with Sense of Purpose. <laughs>
I'll try to not, you know, blather on about uh, bass um, all the time, but the sound of the sound um, and the sound of the bass player in the sound is just awesome. It's just exactly the way I feel a bass guitar should sound. And when I was still playing in bands and recording, this is what I wanted it to sound like. Um, so I love it. And also in this song, particularly um, in the chorus, um, in, the, in, in the second measure, um, it just you know lifts up the whole chorus uh, the way this 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 bass line is being played. So I'm I'm very happy with the song in general and not just the bass. Uh, but it's um, it's it's so melodic and light and, and 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 just right. Not not much to add there. It's uh, energetic as well. And um, uh, the reason I uh, picked the sound and it's quite um, honestly a miracle that we didn't pick up on the sound earlier in our podcast because this has to be the most underrated band and underrated album that I know of uh, in our beloved dark genre. Uh, Some bands racked up hit after hit and enjoyed fame and fortune in the 80s with with post-punk stuff. Others never reached the top, but slowly built a following substantial enough to sustain a decade-long career. And then there are bands who get glowing reviews but never have them translate into a large-scale public uh, recognition. (laughs) And they end up uh, what's uh, being called a poisoned label of being the critic's favorite. That's almost like a death sentence if you want to make it. You make great music, but you just uh, don't have enough to cut it. And I don't know why, because one can only guess as to why the sound didn't make it into the big league. If you hear this song and this whole album is fucking great. And the first one as well. The first two albums and then, okay, in all honesty, maybe you can skip it. But the first two are uh, should be reason enough to uh, have them break through. It is true that uh, a lot of their songs sound a bit of the same, uh, especially later on. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's not an issue for many bands, so why would it be an issue for them? And it couldn't have been the label because they were on Warner, and Warner had you know enough money to promote them. I'm totally guessing here. Your guess is as good as mine, Jeroen, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Did you check video clips or something by them? No, I don't have any, and um, uh. I'm, going, I'm going to get to it because maybe this is an example of video killed the radio star i was just i was just uh, thinking of that right so, so they don't have uh, they don't have any any video clips apart from some uh, some live footage but uh, adrian borland the lead singer is, is very talented but we cannot say it's a good looking guy he's short he's a bit fat <laughs> uh, yeah it doesn't matter but um yeah if you yeah, there are there's so many other great bands making other great music at that time. Maybe the sound just got lost in all greatness. Frontman Adrian Borland uh, missed the charisma of Ian Curtis or Robert Smith at that time, and also in the age of video, killed a radio star. Adrian wasn't the most handsome guy you would like to see in a music video, and also Adrian had a very huh. yeah mm, severe okay. psychological. Uh, psychological issue he had a schizophrenic disorder and he was an alcoholic on top of that so uh, he was not easy to work with and an interesting fact is that uh, this london-based band was more popular in the netherlands than uh, they were in the uk and apparently we dutchies have much better taste than the <laughs> than our colleagues in the uk uh, Adrian also <laughs> lived in the Netherlands for several... Yeah, we just love us a couple of alcoholics. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, and Adrian has also lived in the Netherlands for several periods in his life. Uh, frustrated by the lack of success and the breakthrough that didn't come, 
The sound disbanded in 1987, sadly. And Borland, yeah, he, he just couldn't cope with the fact that other bands made it and not him. He was very, very dedicated and passionate about, uh, about his music. And after the end of the sound, he started a solo career, uh, kept writing songs and performing. And it's a crying shame that he took his own life in 1999 at the age of only 41. Uh, he jumped in front of a train at the Wimbledon railway station. Um, there is a documentary about the life of Adrian Borland and the band The Sound. And it's called Walking in the Opposite Direction. It premiered at the International Documentary Festival of Amsterdam in 2016. Um, we will post a link in our show notes. Uh, you can at least see the trailer. It's a paid documentary. But it's a one and a half hours long if you want to know more about Adrian and this uh, wonderful band The Sound. I'm going to check that out. I really like the sound. I, I didn't know that they were not so big in other countries. Here in the Netherlands, the sound really were an, a name, right, in the 80s. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Yes, they were, and they were performing frequently, and uh, you, you wouldn't have noticed. And now um, we have reached the final track for this week. It's called Under the Milky Way by The Church. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of their breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Memphis Lower the curtain down on right I got no time for private consultation Under the Milky Way tonight Wish I knew what you
this song so much and this is one of these songs that I'd lost somehow you know how you lose songs along the way and then you just never think of them again and then somebody you know a friend plays it for you or brings it to your attention again and you go oh wow and you know this whole sort of world of memories and, and, and loving this song and going you know back to the time that you heard it first it all happens at the same time it's beautiful yeah but this is uh, also just a very very beautiful composition it is. Did you know they're uh, Australian, these guys? Uh, really? Yeah, I didn't know either. You, can, you can't hear it. They're, they must be the most sensitive <laughs> Australians I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. No no accent, nothing. It's uh, No, they, they are from Australia. No, and uh, Subtle. Yeah. Subtle. Very subtle. Very subtle. Austra- Australians that are subtle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, maybe it's because the, uh, they recorded this album in uh, Los Angeles. And um, I, I, I mm. totally recognize what you're saying. I, um, yeah. You don't come across this song or album uh, that much. I came across it recently when I watched Donnie Darko, another oh movie right. link. Oh, that so is an awesome movie. If you, if you want to look for movies, we covered so many great movies with soundtracks and... Uh, yeah. Um, but they, uh, in order to make this album, they temporarily moved to Los Angeles to record uh, with producers Wadi Wachtel. I think that's a Belgian guy or something. He also produced for Bob Dylan, The Rolling Stones, Robbie Williams. More recently, it's not not, not a no. small name. And also Greg Ladani. Never heard of this guy, but he also produced Fleetwood Mac, uh, among others. Um, anyway, uh, when they recorded this uh, album in Los Angeles, it proved to be quite a challenge for the church. And according to the founding member, Steve Kilby, it was Australian hippies versus West Coast guys who knew the way uh, they like to do things. We were a bit more undisciplined 
than they would have liked. <laughs> so personalities clashed. Yes, yes. Sounds uh -huh. uh, sounds a bit tense, right? Sounds very rock and roll, man. Yeah. Personalities clashed as the two sides uh, were debating over guitar sounds, song structures, and work ethic. And under pressure uh, from the producers, Kilby took vocal lessons as well, uh, an experience he later regarded as valuable. And the stress of living in the US influenced their recording and left Kilby feeling out of place. And they put everything into recording Starfish. It sounds kind of stressful, while the album Starfish sounds quite relaxing to me, if I'm honest. Uh, anyway, four weeks of grueling rehearsals resulted in, uh, in the album, which uh, really skyrocketed them. They did six albums before this that you never heard of. Maybe you heard of Heyday. No. And Heyday was the album before this one. No. But um, yeah, they, they took six albums to get here, and um, apparently it took them a trip to LA and some frustration in order to get this greatness pressed into vinyl. Yeah, isn't that fun? Isn't that funny though? Isn't that the way it works sometimes? That you think that you know, for a band to record a great album, uh, there should be you know, love, peace, and harmony. But sometimes, under pressure, you know, the most special things happen. True, uh, in, in in many working environments, but also in the studio, uh, apparently. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you get this link as well, but if I listen to this one, do you know Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they <laughs> seem to yeah. be made in the same space or something. They seem interlinked in one way or another. I can't um, see them separately. Uh, maybe it's also yeah. because of Donnie Darko, because those uh, those both tracks are in that movie. But It's a bit happier, though, this version. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You're but yeah, it's a, it's a definitely right. in the same spirit. And right. Um, yeah. A, um, we I think we we blew a lot of power in one episode because if you li listen to all these tracks, all these stories, everything that's behind it, that's uh, there's a lot of power packed into a one-hour podcast. If you ask me. Yeah, I just hope uh, <laughs> we uh, we we were able to tell people uh, you know something uh, something interesting um, and something new. Um, you have this uh, script, right, for the stuff that we do. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Yeah, uh, good memory. Stuff. Yes. Yeah, we definitely had some some, some old stuff. I think we uh, we may have uh, tipped the scales towards the the 80s uh, this time. So we'll make up with some newer music in uh, in the next episode. Sounds uh, good. Because we're not all not all um, old guys only listening yeah, to let's music. Let's do so. From That's from a good challenge, back, right? by the way. Yeah. But every now and then <laughs> we indulge. <laughs> and I guess uh, today uh, we did just that. But, um, you know, I thought it was a, a great show to do, a great show to make. Uh, I'm sorry for, uh, you know, being a, a bit of a fanboy when talking about Trevor Horn and his, uh, his entourage and uh, all the stuff that they did. I just want to say thank you to everybody who's still listening. There's just so much, so much to say about uh, about Trevor. We could actually spread it across a whole season. Yeah. I thought it was quite compact. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's much more to tell, but uh, I'll. Uh, I think this was enough uh, for for one go, and I think I at least uh, you know proved the point that he uh, was this hugely influential guy, with these you know mega talented people at the back uh, of a lot of things that uh, we loved uh, back in the 80s. So, um, as I said, talking of spirits. Um, Hope that you uh, <laughs> are still listening here. If you did, thank you for making it through to the end. I uh, hope you liked this episode. Uh, please subscribe to our podcast so you can never miss another one. To subscribe, just go to our awesome website at theinfected.nl and you can find the links to subscribe directly on Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts or you know, choose your poison. Um, 
but also we have some great Spotify playlists, you know, mixed sets. Uh, we also have the show notes of each episode where you can reread the stories and we offer all the relevant links and a couple of pictures here and there and you can play the songs. Um, also, we regularly have exclusive interviews with artists and um, basically, if you like this, um, you know, subscribe and help us out with a nice rating on Spotify, Google or iTunes. Please do. Thank you for now. Thank you for listening. It's been an honor uh, and a lot of fun to uh, to make this episode to, uh, together with you again, Gov. Thank you too. Likewise, Jeroen. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we come to an end and we thank you, our audience. Um, and right now, in the spirit of the 80s, I'm going to get a bar of soap. I'm going to use it uh, to make my hair look extremely 80s. And I think I'll uh, take a, a quick stroll around the neighborhood while there's still some moonlight and see if I can shock a couple of neighbors. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Infect me. It was a virus. Infection. You didn't need a doctor to tell you that. It was the blood. Or something in the blood. By the time they tried to evacuate the cities, it was already too late. The infection was everywhere. The army blockades were overrun. And that's when the exodus started. The day before the TV and radio stopped broadcasting, there were reports of infection in Paris and New York. We didn't hear anything more after that. What about the government? What are they doing? There's no government. Of course there's a government. There's always a government. They're in a, a bunker or a plane. No, there's no government, no police, no army, no TV, no radio, no electricity. You're the first uninfected person we've seen in six days. <laughs>